0: So why don't we just start very simply just sort of say, if you can say your name and where you're from.
1: Oh, okay. All right. My name's Paul Cooming. I'm from uh, Dorchester, Mass, originally.
0: Great. Okay. Uh, And so I I noticed you made some of those notes. um, What did you want to talk about to start off the...
1: uh... Oh, kind of my... How it was I came to be the kind of person I was, outspoken, from a rather quiet person, because I never usually spoke out about much of anything when I was a kid.
0: (laughs) Two miles before you get to downtown Boston on the Southeast Expressway, you pass a giant gas tank right at the edge of Boston Harbor, covered in a rainbow of colorful stripes. Seeing this gas tank means you're passing the neighborhood of Dorchester, where much of our story takes place, or at least where most of the characters seem to have apartments. Some places are upper middle class. Dorchester is utter middle class. It's the largest neighborhood in Boston, making up the southern half of the city. For a brief period in the 1980s, it had a bookstore and a movie theater, but unfortunately, they didn't last it is perpetually right on the verge of gentrifying. But, fortunately, it never does. I'm your host, Brendan Hughes. I grew up there. And so did Rose Kennedy, 80% of New Kids on the Block, and John King, who does the magic wall on CNN. Dorchester is where Boston has its morning. The sun is too bright, the wind is too strong, the trees never have leaves, and describe crooked witch-finger silhouettes against Newport menthol billboards featuring laughing people who'd never set foot here, and their slush on the floor of Dunkin' Donuts. Dorchester has four subway stations, all on the red line, far more than its share of brake service and auto body shops burgeoning Vietnamese and Cape Verdean communities, African Americans, Irish Catholics, and a long history of apartments full of activists. Activists like Paul Cooming. I was
1: born in 48, so the war had ended, and there was a lot more opportunities there, and there was a lot more hope in the nation as a whole. That went a lot to what kind of person I became, you know, and I was uh, uh, quiet, but I was very open to the things being hopeful.
0: This is Divine Intervention. This is a story about radical nuns in combat boots and wild-haired priests trading blows with J. Edgar Hoover's FBI in a hell-bent effort to sabotage a war. It's got tragedy, heists, a trial of the century, and the goddamnedest love story you've ever heard. Okay, before I unleash all these accents on you, Something that's always driven me crazy is whenever you see a movie about Boston, it's usually filled with characters walking around being like, kid, who in the fucking fuck do you think you are? In these very, very thick, ridiculous accents. But it's not really like that. I mean, I guess it is, kind of. Sometimes, a little bit, in some places. Yes, in Dorchester, certain pockets. But there's also everything else. The point being, we're not all hitting the package store for Fat Mouth Mickeys and Robin Banks, if you know what I mean. <laughs> there's there's a whole other side to the city. At the beginning of all this, I mentioned that giant gas tank with the colorful stripes out on 93. You can't miss it. It's a huge dome-top cylinder in brilliant blazing white with these hand-painted splashes running over the top. And it turns out it has a name: Rainbow Swash. It was created in 1971 by Sister Corita Kent. Sister Corita was a peace activist, a Roman Catholic nun, and a prolific abstract painter. In 1971, she was commissioned to brighten up this giant industrial behemoth of a gas tank that would block the view of the harbor for miles around. Like many Catholics, she strongly opposed the war in Vietnam and she would later deny that she had secretly painted Ho Chi Minh's profile into the left side of the blue stripe as a protest. And at the risk of conveying too cute a metaphor too early in a podcast, there's something I really love about Dorchester's largest monument being an explosive cauldron of colorful subversion. Which brings us back to Paul. When he was growing up, Paul's family had a strong tradition of caring for the welfare of people you didn't know beginning with his grandmother.
1: She went overboard no matter who came to the back door. There was a railroad track that went near their home. And uh, at that time, during the 20s, there were lots of people using the railroads as a way to get around and get from job to job or campsite to campsite. And people would come to the back door, and she'd always have it open and serve them soup. Their strongest beliefs were to help other people. My father worked as a janitor in a housing project at Columbia Point. He saw it as a a pleasure to serve the poor.
0: He saw it as a Christian honor to be able to do that. Like many Catholics of the 50s and 60s, the church was the centrifugal force in their lives. One of the things about living
1: right next to the church was that we open up our kitchen to anybody from the church that wanted to come over, and we had this big urn of coffee. And uh, we'd have coffee and donuts for anybody that wanted to come in. And there used to be a crowd of 20, 25 people who would come over every Sunday after church, and it would be the more progressive wing
0: of the parishioners. In his youth, in the movement, Paul became known as Little Big Man because of the combination of his height and his utter disregard for his own safety. In January of 1971, as Sister Corita's design was being painted onto the gas tank, Paul was in serious trouble. He had to go underground for a while, and he wound up staying in the already very full apartment of a young woman named Marianne.
2: Paul comes to Florida Street with me and Sarah and the kids. If
0: it's 5 a.m. in Dorchester, where she still lives, with paintings by Sister Corita hanging in her pantry, Marianne is sitting in her living room reading books about spirituality and leadership. In January of 1971, Marianne had just left her first husband and was living on welfare with her best friend Sarah and her two children, Chrissy and JoJo. Chrissy was four.
3: Paul, I remember, like, I thought Paul was mine. Like, I thought he was, like, my friend. So funny, so fun, the most outrageous laugh. I can't even describe to you how bizarre. His laugh was...
0: Paul's
1: laugh. I'm on better medication these days, so (laughs) if it was a couple of months ago, you wouldn't have shut me up (laughs) and there would be no stopping of any (laughs) sentence. Or I'd bite your head off.
0: (laughs) Okay, that brings up an important point, and we have to stop everything right here and get something out of the way. I listen to serious podcasts all the time. I listen to NPR. I know how this is supposed to go. I put my mouth really close to an expensive microphone and speak softly with hushed patrician enthusiasm about lofty things. But it's really hard to do that about Irish Catholics, especially if culturally you are one as well. I'm not per se Catholic, but every single one of my ancestors was, going back to the 5th century. I won't insert myself much in this story, but very quickly, half of my family is from Scranton, the other half is from Dorchester. So... You know, the whole Joe Biden thing of being too close and hugging people and stuff like that, that makes perfect sense to me. When I went to my grandfather's wake in Scranton, I could barely hear myself think over all the back-slapping. And I will do my best to deliver for you a serious podcast where, yes, everything is thoughtful and considered and paired well with a gluten-free bran muffin in the Sunday New York Times. But it's important for you to know that throughout every ordeal I'm about to explain to you, these people roared with laughter and slapped each other's backs and grabbed each other's cheeks and were thrilled to see each other and yelled too loud. For instance, here's Marianne again talking about her friendship with Sarah.
2: You have no idea how I wish, oh my God, because we were both really funny. I mean, we would scream laughing. Scream laughing. I remember one time we're walking to down to the Newman Center. Sarah and I are walking down Bay State Road, which is where the Newman House was, in, at BU. Oh, yeah. And we're laughing so damn hard. We're, like, like literally bending over. And Mike Hunt yells down the street, Do you two know a war is
0: going on? <laughs> Sigmund Freud said of the Irish that they are the only people in the world completely impenetrable to psychoanalysis. So with that caveat out of the way, that this is going to be a fucking mess because Catholics are involved, let's continue uh, with Kristen describing Paul.
3: And I remember like it, like everybody, whenever he would laugh, would stop whatever they were doing, like in a restaurant or, or at the Paula Center or just like walking down the street. He just was special. He was really special. And small, and elfin, and always had rosy cheeks.
0: So why did sweet little Paul, he of the world's most wholesome upbringing, have to go underground? And by that I mean hide from the FBI by moving into a one-bedroom apartment that already had four people in it.
4: Paul Cooming had signed up as a conscientious objector. This is
0: Ann Walsh, who at the time was a nun living on Claiborne Street in Dorchester. She had recently rebelled and left the charge of her mother superior, and by all accounts was a pretty hardcore activist and movement leader. She's also an incredible artist, quilter, and poet.
4: And he was assigned for alternative service to be an orderly at the Newton Wellesley Hospital. And this is Paul Coming, who grew up in Dorchester, between the Franklin Hill Project and St. Leo's Parish, and so he said, you know, I'll go to City Hospital if you want, where poor people would be served, but I'm sure I'm not going to go to Wellesley. So they said, no, you're going to go to Wellesley, you don't get any choice. What
1: I did was I took my cards and put them in an envelope and mailed them back to the draft board telling them that it was against my uh, religion to continue to hold these cards or participate in the draft. So I sent them back with a statement similar to that, and uh, they kept them, then a few years later, they charged me with uh, not having them on my person. There was the law at the time said that you had to carry your classification card and your registration card on your person at all times if you were over the age of 18. Uh, they knew I didn't have them on me because they
0: had them in their, in their hands. So picture a country where if you were a certain type of person, you had to carry papers on you and you could be stopped at any time and forced to produce them. A country where you could be forcibly taken to the other side of the world, given a gun and sent into battle to be shot and killed, whether you believed in the war or not. And this was a tough war to believe in, especially for Catholics. But more on that later.
1: Yeah, I got a uh, summons from the court. I was being charged with three counts of violation of the Selective Service Act. I was
0: just gonna end up going to jail for a while and I was really just bummed out about the whole process. Paul lived at the time with a bunch of other activists in a group house on Claiborne Street in Dorchester.
2: There was some um, talk... Marianne. ...amongst the community Claiborne Street.
1: Kind of uh, action around my refusing to carry my draft cards in my trial. And
2: that Paul wanted to take this action, that he wasn't going to show
1: up for court. Ann Walsh grabbed me by the collar one day and said, look, I want you to go down to the Paula Center. I want you to meet some people and talk to them about your situation.
4: I don't know who came up with the idea. Ann Walsh. But we came up with this idea. We were hoping that the Paula Center community would put Paul in sanctuary.
0: Sanctuary, meaning Paul would turn himself over to the authority of the religious leaders inside a church instead of federal law enforcement. The Catholic Church had adopted this practice at the First Council of Orleans in 511 AD, for thieves, adulterers, and slaves to seek refuge from capital punishment inside its doors until an oath is sworn to do them no harm but it had long since been abandoned.
2: So the question was, could they find a Catholic church in which to take sanctuary?
1: The sanctity of a Catholic church was just much more, you know, it shows a prejudice against uh, other religions, I guess, but it was much more uh, <laughs>
0: secure than uh, any other church that it would offer.
2: So Anne Walsh approached Ann Tobin at the Paula Center.
0: So now we have an Anne, an Anne, and a Mary Ann. This is, as I warned you, story about Catholics. Here's Ann Tobin.
5: Ann was a campus minister at BU.
0: Ann Tobin had recently been controversially named female lay minister at the Paulist Center, the church where they wanted to have the sanctuary. Tobin, as many people called her, was diminutive like Paul. She had a master's degree in theology and she was great at keeping house cats alive well into their 20s.
5: And she called me one day and said, could you come and meet me? I have somebody I wanna introduce you to and we want to discuss something with you.
0: That night, Anne, Paul, and Anne met at a Peter Pan restaurant near Boston University.
5: She had this young man with her. She introduced me to him and she said, this is Paul Cooming, he's been drafted and he's not going to go, he's going to resist. And she said, we wanna know if we could have a sanctuary at the Paula Center. And I said, well, yeah, sure, (laughs) why not? (laughs) And she said, said, well, clearly, she said, you don't know much about sanctuaries. A Catholic
1: church had not done that during the Vietnam anti-war movement, as far as I know, at that time.
2: Because it really, a Catholic church had never had a sanctuary for a conscientious objector ever in the history of the Catholic church ever anywhere in the world before. It was a first like all through World War II, no, nothing, What's nothing, zero Zippo.
0: In fact, there hadn't been a political sanctuary in a Catholic church since the 16th century. Protestant churches had, and there had been pretty bloody.
5: She said they, there have been several sanctuaries in Boston, and they have been very violent. Um, situations because of the police and the National Guard. And so she gave me an example.
0: Ann Walsh then explained to Ann Tobin that there had recently been a sanctuary at a Protestant church across Boston Common from the Paulus Center. It's on the very opposite side of uh, Boston Common, Arlington Street Church,
1: and the sanctuary that occurred, I think, probably just a year or so before. She's
5: 96 federal marshals broke into the chapel and beat people up and people were hurt and there was a lot of damage done to the Arlington Street Church.
1: Police had gone in, in riot gear and smashed heads with billy clubs and dragged the uh, soldiers that were AWOL basically out into the street and the rest of them. There was a lot of injuries.
5: I said, oh, I see.
4: Well, that's okay, we'll do it anyway. You know, we'll do it. We'll figure it out. I was hoping that they would say no so that would end it. And Walsh. And then I could feel smug and superior, like I would have put them in sanctuary, you know. But what I didn't want was that specific place to be the sanctuary because my father had for years and years worked at the state house and gone to mass there every day. So it was part of a whole group of Catholic politicians who had helped rebuild the Paula Center, build the Paula Center to begin with. And I thought, my family's gonna say, oh, she's going out of her way to show disrespect to our father's memory. He had just died, right? And I thought, well, I could do without that ride, you know? The
0: Paulist Center sits at number five Park Street, smack in the middle of downtown Boston, and it's right below the Golden Dome of the State House. Park Street is the shortest side of the five-sided Boston Common. And it's where you'll find the three sets of red double doors that mark the entrance to the paulist Center chapel. It was dedicated in 1957, but because of anti-Catholic prejudice in Boston at the time, Cardinal Cushing had to have a Protestant friend buy the building and then turn it over to the Paulists. The Paulists are one of the many orders of the Catholic Church, like the Jesuits and the Benedictines, the Josephites, and the Dominicans. They were the first order formed in the United States, and they have a uniquely American focus. The mission of the Paulists is outreach to non-Catholics.
2: I remember being overjoyed that I was
0: assigned to Boston. That's Jim Carroll, who at the time was a Paulist priest working at BU with Ann Walsh. He's also the author of several books, including Practicing Catholic, Prince of Peace, and An American Requiem, God, My Father, and the War That Came Between Us which won the National Book Award.
2: And I was assigned to Boston University, which also pleased me. I didn't want to go to the Paulist Center. Why not? Well, it was a church. And it was also famously establishment.
0: And it was full of old guys. And it was going to be hearing confessions and saying mass. uh, But it was a church. Two of Jim's seminary brothers, Patrick and Floyd, were assigned to the Paulist Center. And in the two years between their ordination and when Paul sought political sanctuary, they had thrown the place and the entire order into total upheaval. In part by controversially appointing Anne Tobin as female lay minister. And it was in this capacity that she took the meeting with Anne Walsh and Paul Cooming.
2: Anne Tobin calls me and Sarah and says, You're not going to believe.
0: This is Marianne.
2: What just happened? We were beside ourselves with excitement about the possibility of doing this because it would be so powerful. And Tobin had to bring it to the team. I, I, I have no idea what happened with the Paulus Fathers. I have no idea if the Paulus Fathers gave a thumbs up to this before we actually took sanctuary.
5: The only problem was when I went back to the Paulus Center that night.
0: And Tobin after her meeting with Ann Walsh and Paul Cooming.
5: And I ran into Patrick, because I got off the elevator upstairs, and I said, oh, Patrick, this is the most exciting thing. I said, we're gonna have a sanctuary. He said, don't say anything else about it. I don't want to know. He said, don't tell me anything else about it. I said, oh,
0: okay. We'll be getting to know Patrick a lot better later. In fact, he's one of our main characters, so remember that name. But for now, suffice it to say, when this conversation happened, he was going through some serious shit.
5: That, that was really kind of shocking to me because then I thought, well, so I called Ian and I said, well, there's a little bit of a problem. I said, um, I, ran, I told her what happened and I said, so uh, Patrick is probably the most liberal person on the team and so... I'm I'm not sure about the reaction of the others. What
0: were the stakes, though? Would it be could there, could they have been maybe they could down have the shut the
2: down that? Yeah, they could have maybe shut down the Paul Center or whatever.
0: Did Rome have that authority to do that?
2: Well, Boston Archdiocese could have. Yeah, they could have said you're no longer welcome in the Boston Archdiocese.
0: But Anne, Paul, Anne, Marianne, and Sarah pressed their case. The group came around to. I think it probably took
1: quite a few conversations.
4: And they said yes. So, oh, God, that was bad news to me. Although I loved him to death, I feared the ramifications of it, like the federal agents, you know, bashing people as they had done at BU.
0: Eventually, Patrick came around. So
4: the decision was made amongst
2: all of us that we were going to do it.
0: And so, they began making preparations.
2: And there were hundreds of people involved in this, from the whole community at Newman House at BU. All of us at the Paula Center, the whole Catholic left community up and down the East Coast, there were hundreds of people involved.
1: We were planning this for about a month, I believe. The peace community within the Paula Center was so advanced.
2: The groundwork that had happened prior to this was getting the church ready, because we knew there would be many people who would stay inside the church with Paul, including me, the two kids, Sarah, and a hundred other people.
1: We were sure that the word had gotten out that this sanctuary was going to happen and that I was not going to show up at trial.
2: Because the FBI was so vigilant, There was concern that Paul would be arrested.
1: Because we knew there were parishioners who had brothers or relatives in the FBI. And that
2: they would find out about this ahead
1: of time. We felt for sure that that they knew.
2: So the question was, where could Paul go, quote unquote, underground?
1: I and Mary Ann and Sarah and others, Antobin and Patrick, decided.
2: So the idea was, could he come? and stay
1: at Florida Street with us. Pretty low income building that was not well kept up.
2: Why we were thought to be underground, I have no idea. Because, maybe because of the kids.
1: Okay, I had a crush on (laughs) Saratosi. So I think I was the one that brought up the idea that a good place for me to hide out was their apartment. So Paul moves in with us. And the fact that there was no place other than a floor space for me to be (laughs) didn't make any difference, you know.
2: (laughs) Okay, let's go back to basics. Three rooms. Chrissy
1: and Jojo had one bedroom. The kids had the bedroom. There was a kitchen, and there was a living room. And that's all there was to this apartment.
2: Paul's got a bedroll. Sarah and I are on the daybed, pull-out couch.
1: I slept on the floor and uh, did that for two weeks.
2: One thing I, I remember
3: about Paul was sitting on him.
0: Chrissy again, Marianne's daughter, who was four.
3: I just loved him, sitting on his lap, holding his hand,
2: while he was doing his crazy laugh, feeling his body shake. Now we're all living together at Florida Street, and we're all involved in getting the sanctuary organized and then getting him in town without being seen. And I will never, ever, ever forget the morning we're going to go to take Sanctuary. He's supposed to show up in court at 9 o'clock.
1: I had a court date. I was supposed to show up for trial to answer questions and ask questions because I was defending myself. My brothers were in the service. We're all trying to convince me to to canada and they had it all planned and they had the the car all gassed up and ready to take me anytime i wanted to go because they did not want to see me going to prison and thought that would be too brutal on me and uh, that i uh, i would be better off that they would support me somehow if i went to canada so there was a lot of pressure from my family not to do it this way
2: so the morning of the sanctuary we all get up at the crack of dawn, we had a long brown coat with a hood. I remember the cape. They had to
3: dress him up in a costume, and I think it was like a cape with a hood.
2: Again, 70s. The styles of the coats at that time, they almost looked like monks' habits.
1: I either look like a woman or I look like a monk.
2: I
3: remember, I think it was my mom putting a little bit of makeup on. I
1: think I even put on a little bit of makeup, uh, lipstick or something to, to emphasize the fact that I was a woman. Joe and I
3: were part of the cover because we held
2: his hands. We have the kids, we've got Jojo in the carriage, we're carrying backpacks because we know we're going to stay. And. Kristen and Sarah, Paul and I, and JoJo all go to Ashmont Station. It's snowing. I
3: mostly remember the subway ride in,
2: being anxious. We went in on the subway with the kids, coming in with all the people who are going to work. When we get off at Park Street, we look up Park Street and we see that there's activity outside Park Street. And it looks like the FBI. It looks like... Park Street is being covered.
3: My understanding was when the sanctuary started, Paul was not in the Paula Center that the FBI got there before
2: he did. And so we get ourselves into Brigham's.
0: Brigham's, if you're not from Boston, was a ubiquitous chain of diners in the 60s and 70s, and their coffee tasted like pavement.
2: And we get ourselves a cup of coffee, and we're stunned. I mean, we're... We're... We
0: uh, felt that
1: for sure the FBI would want to try to stop me from going into the church rather than having to drag me out of the church.
2: What are we going to do? Are we going to make a break for it and just saunter up there? Paul in his girl coat and get him in the door?
0: Meanwhile, Paul's father was in the courthouse facing the judge in his son's place.
1: There was probably 100 people in the courtroom expecting me to be on trial and there to support me. But I wasn't there, but my father and mother were there. The judge, Judge Charles E. Wysanski, Jr. I remember his name very well. (laughs) He was the chief judge of the federal district. He asked if there was anybody there that knew where Paul was.
2: His father was gonna be at the courtroom and read the statement to the judge. My father
1: gets up and says, "Uh, Your Honor, Paul is not coming to trial today, Paul is being offered sanctuary in a church nearby and will stay there and is refusing to come to trial to participate in this process. Oh, I think he was shaking in his boots all the time he was talking and uh, the judge adjourned the meeting and he ordered the federal marshals to take every precaution not to disrupt the church. He ordered that from the bench.
0: At that moment, the assembled supporters stood in unison, began singing, and marched towards the Paulus Center. They
1: walked from the courthouse, which was probably a good seven or 10 blocks away, somewhere in that vicinity, marching and singing all the way with my father and mother leading a parade, (laughs) singing uh, anti-war songs.
0: They did that for the several blocks right through the streets of Boston. From where they stood at the window of Brigham's, Mary Ann, Paul, Sarah, and the kids could see down Tremont Street that the singing marchers were headed straight for the Paula Center, and they were going to go inside and start the sanctuary without Paul in the building.
2: Now, our job had been to get Paul there before anybody else got there, but what with the FBI up and down the road? That wasn't working out.
0: The marchers, We're about to round the corner onto Park Street and head straight for the FBI, with Paul trapped in Brigham's, watching. Divine Intervention was brought to you today by the Dwight Street Book Club. Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, Nicholas Hassong, Catherine Sheehy, Jessica Ford, and myself. It was written and edited by me, your host, Brendan Patrick Hughes. With editing assistance from Masha Simring, Dante Marino, Jonathan Fieros, and Elise Corwin. Interview assistance from Lewis Wheeler and Chris Banno. Research by Susie Blair, with consulting help from Pamela Grimo. Special thanks go out to Amelia Hirsch, Jaji Hammer, Joe Tropea, Mary Seidel, Emily Topper, Oscar Hughes, Kristen Hughes, Carly Pope, Ethan Stocks, Davy Gardner, and Max Ludlow. Our episode today featured music from the great Yusef Latif, the also great Atahualpa Yupanqui, Blue Dot Sessions, Holizna, and the Lumineers. Be sure to check out our other podcasts from the Dwight Street Book Club, including Ask Rana with Rana and Brian. And tune in this fall to AMC for Interview with the Vampire, created by our fearless leader, Roland Jones. This is Brendan Patrick Hughes. Thank you for listening.